0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to a fresh edition of Physics of the Mystics, fresh, hot off the press, on this very special podcast where we embark on an exhilarating journey that stimulates the mind and opens new windows of wisdom, inspiration, and light. In this very, very thought-provoking series, we explore the captivating intersection of science and Kabbalah seamlessly blending synthesizing and fusing these two realms together prepare yourselves to be amazed as i demonstrate and discuss how mystical concepts laid the foundation they are laying the foundation for scientific exploration even when scientists don't even realize that listening to this podcast you will discover how science and quantum physics and science in general validate confirm and corroborate the ancient truths that are found within kabbalah as we unravel the mysteries of the universe we aim to ignite a sense of wonder curiosity and ah within our yours mine, and everybody's mind get ready for a mind expanding journey where we unlock the secrets of the cosmos inviting you to explore the profound connection between science and mysticism in a truly enlightening and captivating manner welcome to physics of the mystics where science and kabbalah converge to inspire inform and transform your understanding of the world of our faith of our appreciation of god who is not only all around us but is really us we are an expression of the god that gives rise to who we are and to our identities my name is rabbi shlomo Azagwi. I'm a rabbi here in South Florida for over 36 years. I have an email address that I appreciate so much when you send me your emails. My email address is mystics at gmail.com. Please send me your emails to mystics at gmail.com. And so we've discussed in the past podcast about many, many different subjects that we've already demonstrated. And I hope you've been dazzled by recognizing, realizing that what today's scientists are discovering are no more than principles that have already been discussed and recognized in the traditional age-old books of Kabbalah, of the Talmud, of the Torah itself. In the past podcasts, we talked about how the positive energy the protons are much bigger than the electrons. The electrons, they um, circulate around the nucleus of an atom in which there is the proton. And this is the special role of males and females and the very special place that a male has in the center and that the female has taking up all the space and circling around. We also spoke about the 26 constants that make up this very precise universe. Which is an expression of the numerical value of God's name. God's name, yud and a hey and a Vav, and a hey, equals twenty-six. Isn't that incredible? That there are twenty-six constants that make the universe to be so precise and so beautiful as we have it today. We talked about the 24 quantum fields. Out of the 24 quantum fields come those 26 constants. And we talked about how isn't it incredible that there are 24 volumes of the Torah. The Torah is the blueprint. It is what describes the particles. And so the particles... The quantum fluctuations come out of the quantum fields. And just as there are 24 books to the Torah, to the blueprints, there are 24 recognized quantum fields that give rise to the 26 constants, the numerical value of God's name. We talked about how in God's name there are four letters, but it breaks down to the first letter, Yud, and then the last three letters, which is He, Vav, and He, which means the present creation, The present creation is made of three letters, but the whole name, which is the underlying force to this entire universe, is four letters. And we talked about how there are four forces, and then there are three levels of energy. That's basically the entire universe. And so we've already addressed so many incredible, incredible concepts of science and of quantum physics, and we are recognizing here on this podcast, how science, as the Rambam and Maimonides so, so strongly encourages, science helps and deepens our love for God and our fear and our respect and our awe for God. It makes us realize how the whole world is a monistic world. It's all one energy. When we say E equals MC squared, energy and matter, They are equivalent to each other. One is the other. And the energy of this world, which is God, expresses itself in such a way that it turns into matter. Matter is God. It is the energy. And it is expressing and the, so to say, the notes, the uh, incredible harmony, the harmony of this universe is expressed within those notes that are exactly as Kabbalah and as mysticism describe it to us. I'm going to share with you today some things that are a little bit complicated, but I hope you're going to stay along with me for the ride. And you will, I'm, you will at least appreciate the point that I'm trying to make, even if you don't get the specific details of signs that I'll be sharing with you. But before we get into today's brand new ideas, I want to share with you some incredible. I don't think it's known that much um, Albert Einstein's support for the Talmud. You know, people look at Albert Einstein, this great scientist, this genius, but what does he have to do with the Talmud, right? The Talmud is the natural extension of the five books of Moses or the 24 books of the whole Bible. They They are then understood and interpreted in the great works of the Talmud. And Albert Einstein he wrote a letter April 16th, 1932, to Adolf Ochs. Adolf Ochs was the owner and publisher of the New York Times. And this is what he writes to Mr. Ochs. And he says like this, Ochs is O-C-H-S. Allow me to draw your attention to the endangered undertakings of the Talmudic Library in New York. I'll tell you, I'll share with you in just a moment. This was an undertaking that, Mr. Einstein supported it very much, and it was running out of money and They were turning to this um, publisher and owner of the New York Times to help support this undertaking which was which was running out of cash so mr einstein Albert Einstein was taking up the case of supporting this Talmudic library, and he writes the address where the library happens to be. And he goes on in his letter and he says, I do not know your position on Jewish literature, but I am convinced that the maintenance of Jewish literature was one of the most effective means for the preservation of our valuable intellectual and moral tradition. Albert Einstein, recognizing and understanding the great importance of the Talmud. Here is another letter that he wrote of support to this to, to this project and to the one who was in charge of this project. And this is what Albert Einstein writes. The scientific organization and comprehensive exposition in accessible form of the Talmud has a twofold importance for us Jews. It is important in the first place that the high cultural values of the Talmud should not be lost to modern minds among the Jewish people nor to science, but should operate further as a living force because he wanted very much that this new Talmudic library should go off with uh, tremendous support and strength. And that's what Albert Einstein is writing about. He felt that it was an incredibly important as he continues on to support this cultural work with thus been an important achievement for the Jewish people. Isn't that something that a lot of people are not familiar with? But that's what the genius Albert Einstein understood and appreciated that it's all in our tradition, in our tradition, in the Talmud, in the Bible. That is where you will recognize the incredible, incredible, deep knowledge and tradition of our great heritage. Now, let me move on to today's new subjects that I'd like to share with you on this incredible podcast and i'm going to um i'm i'm going to as i've done in the past podcast discuss the idea that what we are recognizing and the way scientists are understanding science is so similar and it's so parallel with the ways the torah describes god and the way the torah describes the underlying spiritual energy to the world so when the torah describes God's expression and the underlying energy to the world in spiritual terms, in a way that today scientists are describing exactly the same descriptions. In a physical sense, this is not coincidental. This is because what they are recognizing is exactly the expression of the spiritual as it becomes, so to say, hardened, as it becomes more of a physical expression. And so today we are already um, getting, so to say, a, uh, a peak at what the prophet tells us is going to take place when Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes, which is the ultimate, so to say, goal for creating this universe, and when the knowledge and awareness of God will fill the world, like the oceans, like the water and the oceans um, fill up that space. The same thing will be in the times of Mashiach. We will be able to clearly recognize God. And when we see the concepts of the scientists describing the world to be exactly as it is spiritually, we see the two and two what for many, many years were considered extreme opposite and so far from each other, coming closer and closer together. And so this should give tremendous excitement and a tremendous boost and support to those people who ever doubted the way the Torah, and the way Kabbalah describes God and the underlying energy to be exactly the way it is when you're putting on the tefillin. And there is on the tefillin, on one side, a three-head a three sheen, and on the other side, a four-head sheen. And then we're recognizing in today's science that there's such a thing as the incredible importance of the number three and the number four, as I just shared with you a couple of moments ago. Or, for example, when we see that the custom is that when a man and woman get married, the woman goes around in circles seven times, which happens to be the maximum amount of shells that there are in any atom, and she goes around seven times the man who is there in the middle, right, and we see the relationship is so is so, is so obvious and so apparent right so this is a tremendous a tremendous sort of say boost if anybody needed a a, and and a way to be able to relate on a more concrete level to the spiritual practices and make it sort of say more important more personal when we observe these things as being truly effective and influential in our lives and in the universe so let me share with you this next idea which is um on the subject of left-handedness you know in torah there is this big emphasis of being right-handed. Not to say that being left-handed is any less human, but there is this very big emphasis of being right-handed so that when you give charity, you should be with your right hand. When you make a blessing over food, it should be with your right hand. As a matter of fact, the strength of most people is in their right hand. Okay, there are some left-handed people who have their strength there, but the general rule is what I just shared with you. So now... Look at what quantum mechanics and quantum physics has recognized in one of those four forces. There are four forces that are underlying to the entire universe, right? There is the strong force, there is the weak force, there is electromagnetic force, and there's gravity. Now, the weak force is very, very important. It's very, very important in creating the fusion of nuclear energy in the sun, we've talked about this in one of the podcasts that's it's so incredible, and that, that it takes four atoms that again, the idea of um, the underlying um, idea of the number four which creates the, the the entire heat and the entire light that we have over here in this universe and in this world. but that was another podcast today. I'm talking about the left-handedness of the weak force. Could you imagine? The weak force is described as being left-handed. There was this scientist by the name of Wolfgang Pauli, and he didn't believe in this left-handedness um, in the weak force. As a matter of fact, he displayed immense confidence in the principle of symmetry, which is commonly referred to as parity. And he thought that that was going to be upheld in experimental results he was so so convinced in this that he declared his willingness to wager a substantial amount of money that he would be right and to emphasize his certainty so wolfgang Pauli he made the remark i do not believe that the lord is a weak left-hander it is crucial to note that when discussing left-handedness or right-handedness in the context particle physics i want you to know and i want you to know that i know we are not referring to any physical left or right sides of a particle what we're talking about is these terms, they are describing a property that is associated with the particle's intrinsic angular momentum, which is also known as spin. Okay, I'm getting a little fancy here. That's why I said, hold on with me. And it's the bottom line that really matters. Those who understand what I'm saying will appreciate it more. Those that don't, you're hearing terms which are good as a starter for you to be aware and familiar with quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Okay, so... Wolfgang Pauli did not believe that the Lord is a weak left hander. Okay? The description that is applied to the angular momentum and spin of these neutrinos. However, within a mere two weeks, it became evident that Pauli's belief was totally unfounded because the experiment did not uphold the principle of symmetry, specifically in regards to parity. What is parity? Okay, I'm using all these fancy words. Parity suggests that certain particles they behave identically whether observed in a mirror or not. Okay, so, but in in this particular experiment, it did not uphold the principles of symmetry. The discovery indicated that neutrinos are considered left-handed, while antineutrinos are considered right-handed. Consequently. This finding led to the proposition that the weak force, which is, of course, one of the fundamental forces of nature, solely interacts with left-handed particles and right-handed antiparticles. Okay, Let, let me just take a minute over here for those that are not up to speed to these complicated descriptions. So in the realm of physics... When we describe a neutrino, that's what we're describing over here. This is what the whole experiment was about. When we are describing something as left-handed, this is relates to a property that is referred to as helicity. What is helicity? There I threw at there you another word, another term. Helicity elucidates the orientation of a particle spin relative to its momentum. It can be envisioned akin to a rotation of a screw. So let me give this metaphor um, to you. If the screw rotates in the same direction as its forward motion, so generally it's described as being right-handed, while if it rotates in the opposite direction, it is deemed as left-handed. So practically speaking, when we label a neutrino a left-handed Um, energy this signifies that its spin aligns in the opposite direction to its momentum so if you can imagine what i'm telling you it looks like it's left-handed right it it would like be more more in line with the left-handed metaphor projection of our bodies in other words if one were to visualize the spin and movement of the neutrino they would appear to be spinning in the opposite direction so this left-handedness of neutrinos, you know, for whoever is um, uh, understands what I'm talking about, this is significant in, um, in, in its implications in particle physics, particularly in concerning the weak interaction. The weak force, which is one of the fundamental forces in nature, predominantly interacts with left-handed particles and right-handed antiparticles, Okay, but it's, that's still keeping with you what I'm trying to, to share with you. So due to their left-handed nature, neutrinos are more inclined to partake in weak interactions compared to their right-handed counterparts. Bottom line, Wolfgang Pali was wrong in his intuitions. And when it comes to the weak force, the way the weak force operates, it operates in such a way where we describe it as being A left-handed force. Now, what's incredible about all this, and I think I shared enough complications with those that are still on to listening to me. Right? What's incredible about this is that what we see once again is a certain degree of um, a certain degree of support, if that's the right word, a certain degree of 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 uh, a relationship. Between the ideas that the Torah says and the way modern day scientists, they have discovered and the way they describe the way energy operates at its most fundamental levels. There are four forces. Okay, gravity um, is a whole different other story, which let's see if we have enough time. Maybe I'll share with you something about that today as well. It's pretty weak, but it's it's a force. It's a it's an important force, right? It, it, that, that's when you stand on a weighing machine, right? You're measuring the gravity of your body down on the scale, right? If if somebody if something falls on your head, that's gravity, okay. So then you have the electromagnetic force. That's light. That's a, a pretty positive kind of a force too. When we're talking about the weak force, which is the, uh, uh, force behind, um, um, all the gamma rays and all the, uh, um, all the, uh, beta rays and all the disintegration of, of, of atoms and, uh, carbon 14, the way they date, um, the universe and things of that sort. And as I said before, it's the underlying mechanism to what makes the sun working, this weak force right? So this weak force is left-handed. Number one, this demonstrates again that being left-handed or being weak is never something to bang your head um, against the wall. There is a strength and an important value in everything in this world, right? There's an important value in being right-handed and if there was nothing positive in being left-handed, God wouldn't make us left-handed. The fact that this weak force is there as a weak force, and that it's described as left-handed, and that it accomplishes so much important things is a tremendous lesson in itself. But in addition to all that, what we see over here is that when the Torah emphasizing is that when we give, we should give with the strong right hand, you'd say to yourself, "What's wrong with the left? The left is very different than the right. Its intrinsic angular momentum is different. It works different than the way right-handed particles and fermions and energy works. And so you get to appreciate the small little nuances of Jewish law have tremendous, tremendous depth and spiritual science and actual science within it and around it. No different than, for example, when you're given an internet address and you you exchange a period for a comma, it would be foolish for anybody to argue what big difference could it be that instead of putting a period, I use a comma. So there's a teeny little bit more of a motion there at the bottom of this dot, and which indicates that it's a comma. Well, it won't work because every specific little detail, whether it's, in the digital sequence that it represents, or in the actual shape of the comma versus the period makes a huge big difference and that ladies and gentlemen is what at least I am so excited about when we're talking about the discoveries of science and we're talking about um what what it means to a believing Jew the the depth of appreciation that it can give a person that the whole world the whole universe is just one energy it's the energy of god himself and that energy that is just one hashem echad expresses itself in very specific ways as scientists and quantum uh, physicists are recognizing. And those specific details are expressing themselves in Jewish law when it says uh, uh, certain things have to be done with the right hand and not with the left hand. And certain things need to be done with um, a Shein, one of the Hebrew letters that have four heads or that have three heads. And anybody, if anybody were to say what difference... does it make or will it make, you just can't sit down at a board meeting and say, you know what? We're going to change the rules because it's too difficult. That would be like saying, you know, I'm going to ignore the fact that the weak force is left-handed and therefore I'm going to address it and deal with it as if it was right-handed. It doesn't work that way. Right-handed energy brings about a certain degree of of an outcome. And left-handed energy brings about a certain, you have to recognize the truth for what it is. You have to recognize reality for what it is. It is much better in life to recognize the truth and reality for what it is than trying to ignore it. Sooner or later, the truth and reality catches up and you spend your entire, so to say, effort and energy going down the wrong path because you were too afraid to take on the truth and the reality of the matter. Um let me share with you um another another idea today. Or you know what maybe this is enough for today. Um because um the idea um that I'm going to share with you maybe next week God willing and to give you a little teaser is going to be sort of on the on the chariot of God. The chariot of God um is described as a chariot with four faces to it. And these four faces to the chariot of God, they each each face in the four different directions has each of those four faces in each of those directions. So that means that in each animal or in each representation of four there's really 16 faces because there are four sides right there's front and back and right and left and each of those four directions have all of the four in each of those directions that means that there is really 16 different representations in each of the one of the four faces of God's chariot and then it's um on top of these four different expressions which is a man a lion an ox and an eagle and they are represented in the form of angels and they have hands that are human and they have their wings that go over their heads the heads of themselves and the heads of 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 the ones that are next to them it gets pretty cool and pretty uh Uh, pretty, pretty crazy over there, but it's, it's, it's the number four again, and that number four is four times four. So next week, God willing, um, not, not to make this way too complicated. We'll talk about the vectors and the scalars and the tensors that are represented in matrix, uh, matrices, um, of different rows and columns and how that happens to be described when talking about space-time, the way it influences um, matter and the way matter influences space-time, it happens to be represented in these matrices as by four by four matrices. Isn't that cool again that the exact way in which we recognize or describe space and time, it happens to be The precise way in which the prophet sees the chariot of God. In other words, what moves everything in this world? What is the underlying expression that represents God in this world? is exactly the way the prophet describes it, and exactly the way scientists are discovering it to be today. Ladies and gentlemen, this is mind-blowing. At least it is to me, and that's why I'm so excited. And it means so much. to to me that many people should be able to see it and be excited as I am. And I'd like to hear from you by you sending me an email to mystics at gmail.com. It would mean so much to me. Tell me if you're excited about what I just shared with you this week. Tell me if you can't wait already for me to tell you next week's or the next podcast physics of the mystics so um, i can be encouraged not to wait that long between one podcast and the other until next time you may have to listen to this podcast a number of times to really get what we talked about and to really absorb and appreciate the tremendous the tremendous uh, uh um so to say um window of wisdom that God is opening up for us, the the, the scientists aren't creating anything. They're just just discovering deeper and deeper expressions of energy, and they happen to be describing it and recognizing it exactly in the dimension and in the numbers that the Torah and the Bible seems to be describing the world. And that's phenomenal. That's unbelievable. Okay, so until next time, all the very best, of good luck and of good success in all your endeavors.